Believe it or not, uh, beloved listener, it's uh, been five years since the uh, rescue of a boys' soccer team from that uh, flooded cave in Thailand. And you no doubt recall the heart-stopping news event which, uh, well, captivated the world. Central to the success of that mission were not one but two Australian cave divers, Dr Craig Challen and my next guest, Dr Richard Harry Harris. Now, to most of us, well, certainly to me, the thought of diving into dark tunnels of a flooded cave sounds like the death wish, but uh, Harry doesn't consider himself brave or even foolish. In fact, he says he's a sensible risk-taker who uh, prepares meticulously for every mission or adventure. Now, since that remarkable rescue, Harry has met many like-minded risk-takers, from mountain climbers to deep-sea submariners, and uh, and he explores the, the different understanding and approach to risk in a new book called The Art of Risk. And... Uh, he now joins me from his hometown of Adelaide. Welcome to the Little Wireless Program. Harry, you must uh, you must take the listener back to that moment five years ago when you were about to sink into the cave waters in Thailand. Were you fearful for yourself? Yeah, g'day, Philip. Um, yeah, five years ago. It's gone past so quickly, I have to tell you. Um, I wasn't. I was never in fear for my own life in that cave, and that um, you know th- that that time we spent over there diving through what is quite a difficult cave um, to to move through. You know, it was it was obviously completely dark. Uh, the water was opaque. There was no visibility at all uh, in the water because a year's worth of mud flushes out of the cave every time the monsoon starts, which it just had. And in in parts it was you know quite narrow and, and restrictive, but. Whilst for many people, um, as you've just described, that is, you know, m- many people's worst nightmare. For myself and and other cave divers, you know, building up experience in, in different caves around the world very gradually over a long period of time has actually meant that we, we can do this uh, pastime or, or sport extremely safely and find it very pleasurable. Um, this was this was not the usual weekend out, of course, and and there were lives at risk. And for me, that was what was frightening. It was the thought of um, you know how were we going to get these young boys out of the cave? I didn't realise that there was a guide rope in place for the two kilometre dive through narrow passages. Yeah, nearly two and a half kilometres, in fact, um, of which about one kilometre was completely flooded. In other words, only scuba divers could pass through it. But in between. Uh, those those sections, there were air bells where essentially you're walking or swimming or wading through a river passage and then back underwater through the next section. Um, so two British divers uh, with the help of the Thai Navy SEALs and some expatriate divers from around the world who live in, in Thailand had over the preceding uh, 10 days or so uh, laid this rope throughout the cave and for Craig and I that made it very much easier for us just to follow their their path through the cave to where the boys were. Let's talk about the important issue of sedation. You initially felt it was not an option. Absolutely. I, I thought it was impossible, in fact, to safely bring any of the boys out whilst under an anaesthetic and I don't think you have to use your imagination too hard to 
conceive that, um, you know, putting someone underwater unconscious for what will be a three-hour journey through a particularly difficult uh, flooded passageway is going to end well. There's certainly no precedent for it. And, um, you know, I had not just the theoretical knowledge of, of what could go wrong, but also some training and practice in cave rescue techniques in where uh, I had myself pretended to be unconscious for a little scenario we were training for and found that inevitably, even using a mask that sealed all the way around your face, that mask would slowly and incrementally fill with water. So, you know, as a conscious diver, I was able to get the water out, but I felt that um, for these children, it would it would inevitably end in, the, in their drowning. What changed your mind? Well, nothing, to be honest. I only believed that it was possible when that last child was out. Um, I, I genuinely believed believed that we were doing the only uh, possible thing we could do to bring those boys back to their families. But to be honest, I, I fully expected either some or even all of them to, to lose their lives whilst we were doing that. Harry, as a cave diver, you're, you're obsessed with exploring caves that have never been explored before. How do you begin risk assessment when you don't know what's around the corner? Well, that is the beauty of cave diving for us is you literally don't know where the cave will go until you, you visit it yourself. Um, you know, you can be in a boat and look at a shipwreck on the on the echo sounder and say, well, okay, it's 100 metres deep and it's this size and we can make a very clear plan taking into account weather and so forth. But in a cave, you have to go down there and um, and make an assessment on the fly. So it's really a dynamic risk assessment. You know, we put we put um, parameters in place, so we might say, okay, we're going to go for this period of time or to this depth or this distance, and if we haven't, you know, reached the end or had any obstacles in that in that time, uh, then we'll turn around and come back, and then we go back with that new information and and proceed further. So again, it's all incremental and um, done very cautiously, even though it might sound uh, a little frightening. Now we're all aware of decompression sickness. How do you deal with that? You experiment, I guess, in your own bodies. Well, there is a degree of experimentation, particularly with the more extreme, I guess, diving that we do. Um, my friend Craig Challen and I have a particular interest in in very deep cave exploration. So we've dived caves over two hundred meters in depth. And that requires many, many hours of decompression to come safely back to the surface to avoid bubbles forming in your tissues or your circulation. Uh, that's that's what causes the bends or decompression sickness. And, you know, the modern uh, algorithms or computers that divers wear aren't really tested beyond, you know, more recreational depths. And so, um, again, we're just proceeding very cautiously and, and padding out what we think is is sensible amounts of decompression time to do. So trying to keep ourselves safe by being very, very cautious in those depths. And your book emphasises the central and simple fact that cave diving is a team sport. Yeah, it absolutely is. And even though sometimes we dive by ourselves, even if we're doing that, because some caves and conditions would mandate that it can be done more safely by yourself, we still have a strong support team team either on the surface or underwater even supporting us uh, but the final part of the cave might be done by one or just two people um, so yeah it is a team sport it seems counterintuitive to me that uh, one of your dives was in a cave on the Nullarbor the Nullarbor plain uh, particularly the western australian Nullarbor is um, a, an amazing cave diving and dry caving location there's over 10,000 
cave features. Some of them are just literally dents in the ground, but um, there are some of the world's most beautiful, extraordinary uh, water-filled caves out there. And uh, it's a hugely precious natural resource, which a lot of people would drive across the Nullarbor and not realise what amazing stuff lies, lies beneath the road and beneath that uh, limestone plain. We've talked about decompression sickness. What about, uh, well, what about deep cold? What about hypothermia? Yeah, cold is a real risk, especially in caves like the deep one in New Zealand that I've been talking about. Uh, this very deep cave is is a, a cave on the South Island of New Zealand and the water temperature is about six degrees and the dives last up to 16 hours. So uh, obviously we have to take great measures to keep ourselves warm. Uh, we wear dry suits, which keep the water completely out of um, outside the suit. And we also have 12 volt heated undergarments. So electric underpants keep us, uh, keep us warm and happy. And uh, you know, we, can, we have these things called habitats, which are basically like an upturned bucket, which we fill up with air and we can climb up inside them and get at least the top half of our body out of the water, which helps uh, keep us warm as well. It's unavoidable not to talk about the uh, Titan submersible uh, and the disaster implosion as they sought the uh, wreck of the Titanic. You spoke with uh, James King of the World Cameron for this book, and he knows more about diving on the Titanic than anyone. Yeah, he certainly does. And I had um, a very brief interaction uh, with his uh, deep sea submersible project uh, that was built in, in Sydney by uh, a guy called Ron Allum, who actually was my original diving instructor here in Adelaide in the late 70s. And um, uh, Ron's also an amazing um, cave diver historically. So Ron is an engineer and he built this submarine with James uh, in, in a factory in, in the back streets of Sydney. And I went over there to consult a little bit actually about what we've just been talking about, about thermal protection for, for Jim Cameron, um, because obviously the bottom of the ocean is very, very cold. And if there were some um, electrical failures and so forth, he would be at risk of dying of cold uh, whilst uh, other measures were being taken. So yeah, it was pretty, pretty awful to hear about this other submarine. Strangely enough, my friend Craig and I were in the Bahamas in 2019 and um, they were doing some testing of that sub. Um, on an island where we're doing some cave diving and we actually visited the sub and had a look inside it and I remember asking Stockton Rush if we could go for a ride on it. Um, so very strange to have these memories now looking back at those photos. Now Cameron, of course, has broken any number of records, well, in 2012 in particular, those amazing dives on the, on the ship. But he also told you, and this is news to me, that the main reason he made that monumentally successful movie was to finance his own explorations. Yeah, that's cunning, isn't it? If I was uh, clever enough to make films like him, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. But, uh, I, you know, James uh, Cameron is a, truly an explorer. Um, his, his ocean exploration, his diving, including his cave diving career, is, is quite extraordinary. And um, it's amazing that a guy like him can have that, that two halves of his brain, the engineering brain and the creative brain, and obviously an amazing storyteller. So it's always good to have a chat with him. How does Cameron approach uh, this sort of project? Oh, Obviously, uh, much more carefully than others. Well, um, I don't want to compare to the you know to the recent disaster because there has been some criticisms, but I'm obviously not in a position to make any judgments about that. But I can say that um, Jim Cameron is an incredibly obsessive 
um, engineering brain that that uh, looks at every possible scenario uh, that can be imagined. There's always that X factor or lightning strike, as we we call it, which um, can cause a disaster in any of these kind of ambitious projects. But they they um, uh, what's the word they um uh, they they sort of war gamed every possible. Uh, incident or, or risk that they could and develop strategies to, to um, you know, overcome those. So, you know, if anyone could, could do a project like that, it's certainly him. You're reluctant to pass judgment, but Cameron hasn't. He's already said that the Titan submersible disaster was an avoidable tragedy. But let's talk about another Oscar winner in Jimmy Chin and his rock climbing friend, Alex Honold. Alex is the star of that documentary film, Free Solo, where he climbed a 900-metre cliff face in Yosemite without safety equipment. Uh, that, that film, I remember, um, changed the way that I looked at documentary filmmaking. It was so frightening to me to watch that guy do that. And uh, Jimmy and Chai, uh, Jimmy's wife, who, who produced and, and directed that film, um, did it in such a clever way to, you know, never kind of um, overemphasize the the dangers. They just put it on the screen and and made you realize what you were watching. And uh, for someone like myself, who's not particularly good with heights, to watch a guy train himself to climb that uh, that rock face, which is El Capitan, which is, I mean, you look at it and it looks like a sheet of glass. It doesn't look to be any finger holds or toe holds or anything. Um, such as the talent of that that guy, Alex Honnold. And so he trained himself with ropes to do it and then he basically said, well, I've done the whole thing with, with a rope as backup, now I'll do it without any ropes. And, yeah, you've got to watch the film if people haven't seen but it. But, look, how does he do his risk assessment? Well, I asked him that question. I mean, f- when I went into that conversation with Alex, my my mind was saying this guy is genuinely mad, and in the film he was portrayed as being quite neurodivergent. You know, he, you know, they did a scan on him and said that his amygdala, which is the fear centre of the brain, didn't seem to light up under any conditions. <laughs> and I thought, surely um, that you know, a, a complete absence of fear is actually not uh, a good adaptation. It's not uh, good in keeping people safe. And so I sort of put those questions to Alex and to the point where I said, you know, do you feel like you are on the spectrum? Do you, you know, if people actually diagnosed you as autistic because that's what the film portrays? And he said, absolutely not. He says, I'm just very good at what I do. And again, he's built up incrementally gaining experience over many, many years. And always when he's climbing, he films feels like he's working inside the limits of his skill and capability. And so when, when he's doing that, why would he need to be scared if he feels like what he's doing is pretty straightforward, just I'm, because it's impossible for me? I'm talking to Dr Richard Harry Harris, and I have to ask this. Why do humans take risks? What do, well, psychologists or evolutionary scientists think? Well, it's a great question, and this was one of the things I wanted to find out when I um, started my podcast about risk, and that which which led to this book. And one of the best guests that I I spoke to um, was a guy from the University of Queensland called Professor Bill von Hippel, and Bill is very well known in um, the world of evolutionary psychology, which 
um, basically uh, tells us, I believe, and obviously I'm not your expert, but uh, tells us how people, how, how they think and how the way they think has, has caused us to evolve and, and or helped us to evolve and survive. And so looking back, um, you know, a million years and, you know, when we had to fight for every meal and defend ourselves every day against the constant threats of animals and predators and, and other people who are the same species, um, we had to take risks. And, uh, you know, risk takers, particularly in, in males, was the best way to, to, uh, to breed and get a mate uh, to show that you are tougher and stronger than the other guys around you. Um, so it, it's true, truly part of our DNA to be taking risks, uh, whether we liked it or not. And, you know, fast forward the million years to today, we live, uh, well, I speak for myself, I guess, as, as a privileged, you know, middle-aged white Australian um, living here in an extraordinarily safe and, and comfortable society here in Australia. Um, we virtually grow up without much risk around us at all, uh, to the point where people feel that um, any risk is, is a bad thing. And, um, you know, we see people so fearful of taking risks. Um, everyone's so litigious when things go bad. So people are even more uh, shy for, of taking risks. And yet that DNA is still within us. And I think if we don't take risks, we don't develop normally. Even before COVID, we were so risk adverse medically that uh, we overcleaned our houses and that reduced our ability to cope with disease. That's a brilliant um, analogy, Philip. When I look at the advertisements on TV saying, you know, this solution or spray will kill 99.999% of viruses or germs on your hands or on your bench top. Okay, well, that leaves a couple of trillion viruses and germs on your bench top, <laughs> which now are resistant to that stuff you're using. And they'll be the ones that'll be covering the table next time you go back there. So just uh, just relax, you know, eat, eat a bit of food off the floor and get your kids to eat worms and dirt occasionally. It's, it's good for you. Tell us about the time you were nearly lost at sea as a 15-year-old. Yeah, well, that was probably the first time when I actually felt like uh, my life was in, in genuine danger. So I was um, learning to dive in uh, 1979 with uh, that guy, Ron Allum, actually. We'd been out uh, to a, a shipwreck off the Adelaide coastline. Actually, it was just 1980, just uh, February. And uh, the, the sea had come up, it had gotten very rough, and the boat uh, pitch-poled on the way back in. So a following sea, the nose of the boat went into the back of a wave and the, the, the stern of the boat came over the top and we kind of did a, um, a, a rollover. Um, and, um, and then we were tossed into the ocean. And my mate at the time, a friend of mine called Sam, he and I were sitting in the boat with these couple of other students and Ron, and we'd, we'd climb back into the boat and the boat was underwater but still floating, so we were sitting in water maybe up to our chests. And I thought, well, you know, it won't be too long before someone comes out to find us. It was 5pm on, a, on a, a summer afternoon and then it slowly got dark and I started to think, oh, this will be a bit harder for people to find us now. And, of course, my mate Sam was saying, you know, he's much more realistic than me, he was saying, no one's coming out tonight. You know, it's really rough. It's getting dark. Um, we'll probably have to wait till morning. And I couldn't believe that, you know, that I was stuck in this situation. But I kind of also realised that I, I was able to dig deep and try and make light of the matter. And uh, Sam and myself started singing a bit and telling jokes, trying to, you know, keep the other two students who were uh, pretty nervous, tried to keep them cheered up. 
And sure enough, we obviously we we survived till morning. Um, the coldest I think I've ever been in my life, but alive nonetheless. And uh, the police and and the rescue services were looking at it, looking for us down near the wreck that we'd been diving. But of course, we'd drifted a few miles during the night in the strong winds and and tide. And this old fisherman just came putting up to us, and he and he saw us, and he said, "Oh, I thought you blokes would be about here." And he gave us a <laughs> cup of coffee and a and a and a Vegemite sandwich and took us home. I am frequently wheeled into operating theatres and are very familiar with the face of an anaesthetist looking kindly down as oblivion envelops me. Now, that's your day job. So you have to face, uh, well, death and dying a lot. Surely that shaped your approach to risk-taking. Do you know what I think it does um, shape my approach to risk-taking, but actually in a very positive way uh, because it just reminds me that we all are going to die. Um, It's as natural as being born and it's something that uh, as a society I think a lot of Australians struggle with. You know, we don't like talking about death. We don't say people have died. We say they've passed or they've, you know, something, you know, mystical has happened to them. But, you know, it's just just a matter of uh, fact that it's going to happen. And so... For me, and I learned this from my father to some degree, that, um, you know, quality is far more important than quantity in, in life. And, um, you know, I, um, I I want to, um, you know, I want to live my life to the fullest uh, potential that I can. I don't want to die wondering. And, <laughs> and, and, at, and, and at the end of the day, um, you know, doing stuff for yourself as well as for other people is really important to make you a, a better person and a better person to be with. We've been diving into the philosophical depths with <laughs> Dr. Richard Harry Harris, the diving doctor from the famous Thai cave rescue five years ago. His new book is called The Art of Risk, which is fresh off the press this week. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 